This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. We've got a lot of things happening in agriculture this week. Despite it being the first week of the year, it's the first week back for a lot of folks. We're seeing the courts in action again after their holiday break. We'll check in with Gary Bays, an attorney who has been litigating the National Pork Producers Council, American Farm Bureau Federation case against Proposition 12 in California. We'll hear from him in just a little bit. We're also going to talk to Ethan Lane from NCBA. He's got some thoughts after the Biden uh, administration released their action plan yesterday. And at the end of the show, we're going to talk weather with Greg Solier, the ag weatherman from this week in agribusiness. But before we get into all of that, it's worth checking on the health of rural America as a whole. And to do that, our first guest is Dr. Ernie Goss. That's a name you may recognize. He is one of the foremost researchers of rural America. He compiles the Rural Main Street Index each month. Dr. Goss, thanks for taking the time to join us. Hey, Mike, good to be with you. Let's talk is about uh, 2021. Of course, it's in the rearview mirror now, but we're still getting data from that year. Ernie, how did the Rural Main Street Index change over the course of this past calendar year? You know, Mike, we do a survey of bank CEOs in rural areas of 10 states, and the overall index was surprisingly strong. It began on a pretty strong note and ended even stronger We'll do our survey again in January, but things are looking very good in rural areas of, of the U.S. And, of course, uh, there's some real uh, uncertainty out there right now, certainly given what's going on in China or not going on in China. Of course, we've got the va- other issues such as the value of the dollar and interest rates and other factors. But it looks, looking right now, it's looking very good despite COVID-19. That is good to hear. You mentioned it was strong all throughout 2021. That makes sense. Given the prices farmers were receiving for goods, we saw pretty strong net cash income this past year. But the policy uh, picture is getting cloudier. Dr. Goss, when you're talking to CEOs, particularly in the world of finance, rural bankers, do they have concerns growing about where federal policy might go in 2022? Oh, absolutely, and and a lot of them are not very optimistic regarding the federal deficit, for example, and the debt and interest rates to to cover that debt. Of course, the Federal Reserve is now on; uh, they'll be raising rates. Uh, expectations are three rate hikes in the first half, at least in my judgment, first half of 2022. And of course, long-term, that's on short-term rates, long-term interest rates, the Federal Reserve is cutting back on their stimulus plan. Of course, since the pandemic began, the Federal Reserve has increased the money supply by 30 to 40%. And of course, that's pushed the value of the dollar down and the the value of the dollar very low is very good for agriculture. So I think there's a lot of concern about the Federal Reserve, not just the what's going on in the federal government. Well, Dr. Goss, I mean, you've been tracking economic issues for quite some time. When you look at the economic picture today, very low interest rates, rising uncertainty in a lot of different aspects, do you anticipate three rate hikes over this next year as sufficient to put a dent in inflation, or are we off to the races? Well, as you're implying, Mike, I think we may be off to the races uh, there. I think we are going to see a bit the uh, inflation rate trimmed down a bit, but it's still going to be two to three times the Federal Reserve's target of 2%. So and on the producer price index, what we call the wholesale price index, we set a record last month. So that's, uh, of course, that's good for agriculture in the sense that a lot of that or some of it is the uh, agricultural products, which have been on a tear, I shouldn't say a tear, but they've been doing very well. And again, the value of the dollar increased just yesterday with the with the yen up significantly, or I should say the dollar against the yen up significantly. That has some, put some downward pressure on agricultural commodity prices. 
Interesting. Now, as you look out across the country, of course, we've seen this overall strength reflected in your index. But Dr. Goss, I understand you also break things out regionally. We had drought covering much of the country last year. We saw severe weather events. From a regional perspective, who has fared the best in 2021 and who was struggling the most? Well, I, I think certainly uh, we're seeing uh, those be more on the crop side. Uh, grains doing very well, of course, uh, soybean, uh, wheat, and other grains doing very well. On the livestock side, not as well. We've got some real issues there. And, of course, the, even with the consumer paying significantly higher prices for their beef in the store and their pork in the store, it's not coming back to the farmers. So there's some real issues there. Of course, the president talked about that just yesterday in terms of uh, putting some pressure on the four big producers, the beef producer, our processing companies. And I, I don't expect that to go anywhere. I think there's some, uh, my real concern is in China right now, what's going on or not going on in China with real estate there, what comes after the Olympics uh, in China, what happens with Xi Jinping is no marketeer. He's no free market person. So what does he do and what happens in terms of Taiwan as well? You mentioned the Chinese real estate issue. That's a topic we've been hearing about in the news here, but I, you know, we're not necessarily connected to Chinese real estate, the Evergrande issue. What is it about that particular sector that has you concerned looking to the future in China? Well, of course, China is overbuilt and the real estate sector has propped it up. And what that could do, of course, the Chinese have been big purchasers of our agricultural products, and that's been very good for the U.S. farmer. And I, I think that's going to slow down. I mean, that's an issue. They Likewise, Mike, they buy our our bonds. They they use the uh, when we ex uh, when we, we, they purchase our when they have our dollars, they return those dollars to the U.S. buying our bonds and bringing down our interest rates. So, for that matter, I'm real concerned there what that will happen, how that will be telegraphed back to the agricultural sector, whether you're talking about California or you're talking about Nebraska or Iowa or, or Texas. All all in all, it's still uh, we all depend to some degree on China, and that's a real concern of mine going forward. You know, that's a really interesting point. I've thought about China's maybe scaling back their actual purchases of farm goods, but I hadn't considered the impact on treasuries. What could happen in the treasury market, Dr. Goss, if China were to take a step back because they had fewer dollars to invest? Well, that would have some real big impacts, and it would push up interest rates just yesterday, and we're seeing it today as well. Uh, the 10-year Treasury yield, and that's what uh, your listeners need to watch out for. Keep an eye on the year, yield on the 10-year Treasury. When that starts bouncing higher, that's something to be concerned about. That will reflect Chinese buying or not buying as they pull back on their purchases. Those yields will go higher, and of course, the cost to the agricultural bar, long-term costs, will go up. And on the short side, the uh, the Federal Reserve is going to increase interest rates. Wait till about the January the 25th and 26th. They'll announce their rate intentions, at least some degree, what's going forward for 2022. Now, in advance of that, listen to what the Federal Reserve governors say out there in advance of that meeting, and I think they're going to be telegraphing rate hikes. Telegraphing rate hikes. That certainly is the theme. Dr. Ernie Goss, Professor of Economics at the Creighton University Hyder College of Business. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Mike, thanks for having me on. And folks, stay with us. Dr. Goss mentioned the action plan for competition in the meat industry. We'll talk about it with Ethan Lane from NCBA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Each and every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom, covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? 
And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Recently on Agriculture of America. University of Illinois professor Gary Schnitke has been looking at projected break-evens for the 2022 crop. Gary, what did you find as you look out to this next growing season? If we're looking at uh, total cost, and this would be for producing an acre of corn, we're looking at cost over $1,000 per acre. That's the first time that has happened on average in Illinois, if it does in fact happen in 2022. $1,064 is the precise estimate we're, we're looking at in central Illinois, but uh, that is a record level. And that's um, over, uh, over $100 higher than the 2021 uh, cost. And it, again, is a record level of total cost producing corn. And uh, a lot of that's led by fertilizer, but all costs have gone up. For the information important to rural America, join us every day right here on AOA. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We're continuing the conversation here, really taking a look at what's going on in Washington, D.C. And joining us to help make sense of some of the things coming out of that city is Ethan Lane, the Vice President of Government Affairs at National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the old NCBA. Ethan, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. You bet, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You know, as I look back over this past year, really two years, Ethan, it seems we've seen more interest from the legislative and the regulatory side in the beef industry than we've seen in, in, in my life, at least in my recent memory. How have you been able to get NCBA's uh, policy priorities into this mix? Well, you know, because our, our membership is so broad, because we have affiliates from coast to coast, and, and those affiliates are, make up, you know, the entirety of the U.S. cattle and beef supply chain. When you really think about some states being really heavily cow-calf and other states uh, having more of a feeder influence and then a farmer feeder influence in the Midwest, um, it really gives us a unique insight into national policy that's, that's going to be beneficial for the, uh, for the entire U.S. cattle and beef supply chain. Um, that's kind of both a blessing and a curse, obviously, because uh, that means we have a lot of different producer voices that uh, aren't always in sync on those issues. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's part of figuring out how to find some common ground. But that's really how we've perceived our role in what you really accurately described as, um, you know, more intense focus on the cattle industry in Washington than we've seen in, in anybody's memory uh, over the last two years. So we've continued to try to um, have those deep, difficult conversations amongst our membership, amongst the different uh, perspectives uh, in our in our membership and and convey those to Washington in a way that helps inform them about what the the, the true bulk of the industry is is thinking on this rather than um, you know what I think sometimes ends up being uh, you know a, a lot of focus on on the the loudest people in the room rather than kind of the 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 silent majority of producers that are just trying to figure out uh, how to make their businesses successful in this environment. 
Right. Most folks, especially in the cattle industry, they're out there working. It's tough to get involved necessarily on the policy side. But Ethan, on the policy side, we're starting to see some some of the fruit of these conversations about legislative and regulatory changes to the beef industry. Yesterday, of course, we discussed on the show the Biden administration released their action plan for adding competition to the meat and poultry supply chain. From NCBA's perspective, Ethan, how did this plan correspond with what you were might have been hoping it would show? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. A lot of it is restatement of things that we've already heard about from them over the course of the year. Um, you know, we're, we're extremely pleased uh, at the addition of another $500 million effectively in, in processing capacity dollars. Um, that, is, that is great news. Um, I, I loved hearing uh, the Secretary go into some detail about identifying 15, you know, key opportunities around the country to diversify some of that small regional packing capacity and, and jumpstart that process um, because we know it's a long turnaround time. So uh, looking for ways to get that money out the door uh, to those, those folks in need to expand our capacity, expand options for marketing for producers in different parts of the country is fantastic news. Um, we were also really glad to hear them continue to highlight their work on product of the USA labeling. That's something we've been asking for. We petitioned USDA to deal with that last year. Um, Secretary Vilsack yesterday again talked about his work in that area and the need to to have a voluntary uh, label there that, that accurately portrays what's in the package and, and meets consumer demand. But also, um, we want to make sure that that's done in a way that increases our producers' ability to make money from it. Um, so looking at those opportunities as well, uh, we're glad to see that those are still uh, top of mind for the administration. And then, you know, creating this portal for uh, reporting any anti-competitive activity for DOJ and USDA, um, given the focus over the last couple of years, given our request for an investigation and others, um, you know, we haven't heard anything back from that investigation uh, into market dynamics over the last couple of years, but um, we're glad to see they're still paying attention to that. I think the portal is going to be a helpful opportunity for producers that are wanting to convey information to do it, which otherwise may not be uh, that obvious to them. So, you know, we're, we're glad they're moving in that direction. We're, we're a little bit concerned about the way some of this stuff was characterized. There were some pretty broad proclamations of, you know, gosh, the president at one point said the entirety of problems in the U.S. beef industry over the last couple of years was because Trump withdrew the gypsum rule. Well, that isn't necessarily true. Um, there's a lot more nuance there. That's a pretty fraught issue. Um, so I, I think their heart's in the right place. But, um, you know, this is a complicated set of issues with a lot of different perspectives. This isn't one where every farm and, farmer and rancher in the country is looking at this the same way. And, and that nuance is something the White House is really going to have to respect if they're going to be helpful here. And Ethan, you brought up that product of the USA labeling. That, that is something that you guys have been fighting for for some time. But as always, the devil is in the details. What gets categorized as a product of the USA and how do we have any indication yet on what the specific rules might look like to secure that labeling? Or is that discussion still ahead of us? Well, I think the problem is there's a lot of confusion about what on earth product of the USA really is because it feels like an origin label, right? I mean, obviously, if you look at it, that's what it feels like. But that's never been what, what they've been trying to convey at USDA. FSIS's intent for 30 years is that they're conveying that it was, that it was produced in a U.S. facility, meaning it passed through an FSIS-inspected facility. Our contention is no consumer can be expected to understand that. It doesn't return value to producers. It's, it's an outdated and ineffective label. It's serving as a loophole. It's, it's providing a disincentive for our producers to use process-verified programs and other verified, source-verified avenues to market their product and deliver more information to consumers. So um, we're hopeful that USDA is looking at ways to still allow for the packing sector and the retail sector to convey that a product was produced in a U.S. facility um, while not confusing that with the origin of the cattle um, in, that, in that product, because those are two separate things. And right now, they've really kind of gone into this hazy gray area because this label is, is simply not an accurate label in today's environment. Okay. I want to circle back also on the portal, the, the way to lodge complaints directly with the DOJ. Do, do we know when that could be activated? Has the administration put any guidance or timelines as to when these programs could roll out? So, so I saw something written yesterday, and I'm, I, I can't remember where it was written, but it was in some, one of the communications from the White House uh, that they expect to have that tilted up within a month, or at least that's the president's expectation in rolling this out. So uh, it sounds like fairly quickly they will get something turned around and rolled out.
All right, we'll keep an eye on that. The other issue you brought up is the money. This is a lot of money that the, the USDA and other government partners will be pushing out through these programs. I can't imagine they can do that very quickly. As you're looking at this $500 million for infrastructure and new processing facilities, are you thinking it might be a two- to three-year return time before we start to see those numbers grow? Well, I, I was actually pleased at some of the sort of urgency in what they were talking about yesterday because, you know, I, I had some small, some small processors that were emailing us um, <clears throat> excuse me, around this announcement and saying, Gosh, we keep hearing about this money, but we've been hearing about it since June, and I could get I could use that right now to expand capacity. And how do we get access to it? Well, yesterday they they did start to roll out some 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 tiers and some timing. Right, this spring uh, there's going to be an RFP, a request for proposals out there to access some of that capital. There's going to be another round this summer. Um, that starts to put some dates in place where producers or or you know folks that are getting into this packing sector. Um, or small packing operations that want to expand can start to expect to access that capital. Implementing that, we know, is not immediate either. You know, new facilities take years to construct. These bigger 1,500-head facilities that are being contemplated in Iowa and Nebraska and elsewhere, those are multi-year projects as well. So there's no kind of, you know, cash infusion and two months later we're processing more cattle. This is a longer-term prospect. We know that, but we do appreciate the secretary making note of the fact that we really need to jumpstart this process. We've, we've spent enough time, you know, kind of spinning our wheels here. It's time to get some of this money to the ground and, and, and get some of these operations moving. It's time to do some good with it. That makes sense. That's on the executive side. Ethan, on the legislative side in the Senate, we've got the Grassley-Tester-Wyden-Fisher bill. How does NCBA view that? And do you think it has enough support in the Senate to get across the finish line? You know, it, it continues to be wildly controversial. And, and, and that's the thing that I, I, I know that Senator Grassley and Senator Fisher don't want to talk about. But the fact is, it's, it's popular in specific regions of the country, and it's incredibly unpopular in other regions of the country. Um, this just isn't settled business in the cattle industry, and we've seen a lot of our state affiliates pass policy in the last two years since this issue has cropped back up, opposing government mandates. So it's a shifting environment. And, you know, I think one of the concerns that I have is you have a lot of, I think, good intent on Capitol Hill responding to complaints from a year and a half ago. That doesn't mean that the producers that we represent feel like the market is fixed. I mean, we are seeing food prices, and that's a good thing. But they need to be really cognizant of the evolving conversation in the industry, too, and make sure they're keeping up with where producers have their adaptations. That makes sense. If we're going to pass laws, let's make sure they work for the current situation. Ethan Lane, the Vice President of Government Affairs at NCBA, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. And folks, when we return, Gary Bass, attorney who is fighting the Proposition 12 in California. So tune in. We'll be back. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crop, cattle, equipment, technology, and more. They are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us Around the Table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Wheat remains our upside leader. Chicago and Kansas City wheat, that is, here on this Tuesday, with corded soybeans higher as well. Several key winter wheat production states released crop condition ratings on Monday afternoon, revealing the adverse impact of the ongoing drought in the plains and the inland hurricane that damaged the crop on December 15th. Kansas, Oklahoma, and Nebraska saw at least a 25-point decline in the portion of the crop rated good to excellent versus the ratings that were released just ahead of the December wind event. Colorado saw a 12-point decline in the ratings. 
Now, this doesn't guarantee a short crop this year, but it does increase the odds of such. Also, we've seen a shift back to hotter and drier weather for the next two weeks for Argentina, Paraguay, and southern Brazil. StoneX released their customer survey for this month on Monday, cutting 11 million metric tons off its December soybean crop estimate, dropping it to 134 million metric tons. That gave a strength in the soybean market yesterday, and we're continuing to see that strength here on Tuesday. Current numbers, March corn, that is up 12 and three quarters now, 602. May corn up 11 and a quarter at 602 and a quarter. January soybeans up 12 and a half, 1356 and a half. March beans up 12 and three quarters, 1368 and a quarter. January soybean meal up 20 cents a ton, 424.10. January soybean oil up 86 points at 5707. March Chicago wheat nine higher, 767. March Kansas City winter wheat up 11 and a quarter, 802 and three quarters. March Minneapolis spring wheat up five, 972 and three quarters. So a little shift, quarter beans starting to take the lead here in the grain markets. Over in the livestock trade, mostly lower in cattle. February live cattle down 75, 138.17. April down 82, 143.37. January feeder cattle 275, lower 163.50. Hogs mixed now. February hogs up 10, 81.22. April up 37, 87.02. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility. Independence changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Boy, there is a lot of things that change when that calendar flips from December to January and we get the new year. One of the big things in agriculture that changed was the law of the land in California regarding regarding rather meat and eggs that can be sold there. We're going to talk about Proposition 12 today. Joining me to help understand exactly what's happening with this massive proposal that they've got going in California is Gary Bays. He's a principal and co-head of litigation at Olson Frank Wieda. He has been fighting Proposition 12 for a while. Gary, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Mike. I'm glad to be here. And the only thing I would correct you on, it doesn't impact just agriculture. It's going to impact the consumer of this country, uh, and particularly in California, and particularly in uh, Iowa and the Midwest, uh, in, in many, many ways that we see and many ways we cannot see. Gary, before we talk about the legal issues happening with Proposition 12, tell us why is this going to impact consumers and producers? For folks who maybe haven't been tuned in to Prop 12, what is it and what's it doing? Prop 12 is really an animal welfare statute. It is uh, a lot of people in California, including the actresses and actors, say that we mistreat our animals, our chickens, our hogs, our cows, our uh, beef cattle, because we put them in uh, big concentrated uh, arenas. And uh, what they do not understand, when I was a boy and when you were a boy growing up there in Iowa, me in Illinois, we, we for example, we were talking earlier about snow on the ground. We, we let our hogs uh, uh, feral, as we call it, or birth their uh, piglets in A houses or outside. Now, of course, that is all inside it and it's warm. And, and uh, we catch the piglets as they come out of the mother's cell uh, with, with blankets instead of letting them come out on straw. So people just do not understand how we in agriculture have improved uh, the lifestyle of our hogs and our chickens and uh, what have you. So Proposition 12 is merely uh, going back to the animal cruelty instead of animal uh, helpfulness. 
And uh, that's what the people in California, which uh, comprises almost 40% of our population, uh, doesn't, do not understand. And uh, as of January 1, and uh, or here, here at the beginning of January, what's going to happen is uh, bacon is going to go up, or all pork products, veal products are going to go up in price. Uh, we are seeing inflationary uh, factors. Now, all of a sudden, uh, throughout 2022, we will see prices of uh, pork probably go down in the Midwest and go up in California. Yeah, we'll have That's that mismatch of supply between what we can sell in California under their Correct. regulations and what we can sell in the rest of the country. So it's these regulations, Gary, this this minimum square footage per sow during farrowing that Proposition 12 put into place. Obviously, it's going to raise cost for uh, pork producers across the spectrum. They've got to re reevaluate how they house their sows. But as you mentioned, it's going to drive up costs in California. Obviously, legal battles about Proposition 12 continue. Can you fill us in on the current state of play for your lawsuit, which is the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation? It could be headed to the Supreme Court. Can you give us an update? It is headed to the Supreme Court. The National Pork Producers uh, General Counsel and the American Farm Bureau General Counsels have had private law firms who are expert in handling cases before the Supreme Court file writs of certiorari. That writ of certiorari is just a plea to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is unlike other courts. It can turn down cases. This coming Friday, January what? Seventh. Uh, Fifth or seventh, I guess it is. The Supreme Court will meet in chambers and they will decide whether or not to hear this case. Now, what has happened is that we've had one Supreme Court case and we've had a, a couple of uh, district court cases come out of California. Uh, the National Association of, um, of, of uh, Processors have failed. Uh, they were tossed out of the Supreme Court. Uh, those were the Packers. They were not a very attractive uh, plaintiff. Well, the farmers have now gotten into this and said, hey, you are going to ruin our industry by doing this because we will have to reconfigure our barns. Uh, and you and I both know, and anyone listening to this broadcast who raised hogs, you know a pregnant sow uh, gets irritable. And that's why we have these uh, sow confinement areas. And what, again, what the environmentalists and the do-gooders want to do is return us uh, to an era of, of uh, animal cruelty. They do not understand this. Bless their hearts. They do not understand what they are going to force the American pork producer to do. And it's going to lead to more contract uh, producers. Uh, right now, the majority of hog producers in Iowa and Illinois and Indiana and Minnesota are independent. But there are a number of contract producers. Hormel uh, has its uh, contract producers. Uh, JBS has its contract producers. Tyson's has its contract producers. What we will do is we will uh, we will uh, concentrate more contract producing rather than independent farmers. So the old adage in agriculture, well, the hogs were the mortgage buster that hogs allowed you to pay off your farmland. Well, we're going to push more and more farmers into just grain farming rather than hog farming. Now, you mentioned the uh, the legal challenges. There have been a couple of setbacks so far. As you look ahead to the Supreme Court case, how has the NPPC AFBF challenge changed or has it changed before it goes to the Supreme Court? The way it changes, uh, all of the very sophisticated legal arguments that have been used at the district court all point out the extraterritoriality. That is, California will be able to send its inspectors, and I have written about this, the inspectors could be PETA inspectors. They could bring diseases onto our farms. And we know the impact that African swine fever has on us. We know the impact that African swine fever has had on the Chinese hog population. That is the fear. And so what uh, uh, the, the National Pork Producers and the Farm Bureau attempted to do is to bring to the Supreme Court's attention through amicus briefs, that is friends of the court brief, and through its main brief, that you cannot let California send its agents into other states, because on the Commerce Clause, it says that one state is, uh, and, and we are also arguing the Commerce Clause through the NPPC, we are saying that California is attempting to set the standards for agriculture, 
And they are. They're saying they're not because they treat their farmers the same as farmers in Iowa are treated. Well, the fact is, you only have about uh, 99,000 hogs raised in California versus 70 or 80 million raised in the rest of the country. And so with so this, that, pro- oh, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, with Proposition 12, if it remains in place, California's plan was to send inspectors literally to every hog farm in Iowa who could be selling pork into that market? Correct. Wow. Well, you will have to certify. In fact, the farmers will have to set up a paper or computer system that guarantees, guarantees, or you're subject to a fine, or you cannot, as a processor, sell that pork into California unless the hogs are raised under certain conditions. And so California must send out inspectors. In fact, they are already doing that, Mike. That's what we are trying to stop and saying, wait a minute, California, you cannot send your inspectors into Iowa or Illinois or Indiana or Minnesota. California says, yes, I can. And we're saying, no, you can't. So that's what the battle is all about, is California setting the standards for all agriculture. For example, if California wins on this, just think about it. California says, as is already said, it doesn't want the ethanol from Iowa. It wants it from sugar from Brazil. I don't think there's any ethanol from, uh, from Iowa going to Iowa or to California. So what it means is with you and me raising uh, GMO corn, GMO uh, soybeans, California may say, we don't want it. Boy, you can't have a nation like this. This goes back to the founding of this nation. Virginia had all the tobacco and it said, we don't want North Carolina tobacco. And so there was a big fight. And so out of that comes the Commerce Clause. That's what Europe is fighting over right now is whether or not it can set tariffs on products from different states. We have a 50 state trading union, whereas the car that's made in Detroit can be sold all over. As long as it complies with federal rules and regulations is my understanding. And this is what's changing that. This is uh, superimposing state regs over the feds nationally. Huge. This is a huge Huge uh, impact. This week is huge for agriculture, and most of people who are in agriculture, other than the leadership, do not know it's happening to them. And as I said at the beginning of this interview, it impacts the consumer as well. So, Gary, let's talk potential timeline. Let's say Friday, the Supreme Court agrees to hear this case. How long until they make a decision, and then how long until that decision gets put into place? If the Supreme Court decides to take this case, it will say to the petitioner, that is the National Pork uh, Council and the American Farm Bureau, we want a brief from you within a certain number of days, generally it's 30, 45, or 60 days. The other side gets to uh, have the equal amount of time to file a brief. Then the National Pork Producers gets to reply to that. Then it's set down for argument, which will probably be in April or May. And then we will get a, a decision, I would say, in June or July. But during this time, Mike, what do you? what is California going to do? Is it going to import bacon from other countries? It can. Look, China is trying to build back its herd. Look how many agricultural markets China has taken over. So this is a golden opportunity for China to, to, to ship bacon into California. Man, a lot of things changing. Gary Bass, principal and co-head of litigation at Olson Frank Wieda. After this, uh, we hear from the Supreme Court next Friday. Would love to get you back on, discuss this in a little more detail as we start to get some certainty as to how the Supreme Court could decide. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we'll continue talking about things impacting agriculture, notably the weather. Greg Solia will join me when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. 
And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference, bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're joined by Kent Beadle, the Director of Producer Brokerage with CHS Hedging, to learn about risk management ahead of the 2022 growing season. When we think about how producers put their marketing plans together, sometimes just by the very nature of risk management, there can be gaps in how marketing plans flow together. What are some of those gaps that growers should be aware of? Not every grower will take into consideration their living expenses. You know, as we go and we start thinking about the cost of seed and chemical and fertilizer and rents, land costs, you've got to make sure that we're taking into consideration what we spend you know, just to live. Some operators have external income that they use to take care of that. And, and if that's the case, it doesn't need to be considered, but sometimes that's a gap. More and more growers are putting marketing plans together and sticking to them. But some still have some concerns about pulling the trigger on grain marketing in a lot of different ways. What advice would you give to those growers? First of all, understand that grain marketing is difficult. It's an emotional process because we're all very tied to the production that we that we sweated over and that we you know spent an awful lot of our equity and our knowledge trying to produce. So it's not easy to make those decisions. Some producers are more comfortable with it and others are less. If you're one of those people who worry about making decisions and don't make decisions easily or you think in hindsight that you don't do as good a job as you could, then like all of the other things in your operation, go find someone who can help you. Hire that person and find that trusted advisor and then work together to execute a marketing plan. Kent Beadle, thanks so much for taking the time and for sharing some of your insight with us today. Thanks to all of you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Recently on Agriculture of America, we had a couple important reports released by the USDA. We saw their cattle on feed report come out. We also had the quarterly hogs and pigs report come out. Dennis Smith from Archer Financial Services, not many surprises. Not many surprises. The uh, the marketing number was a good solid number at 105. One extra marketing day. Placements were at 104. Looking forward or, or looking at the reaction to this, I would think you should see some bull spread activity. In other words, the front end of the market, I would think, would be a little stronger than the back end of the market. We're pivoting or we're looking for the, the next cash market, 135 last week. There's talk of uh, maybe it'll be much closer to 140 when it gets established later this week. For the information important to rural America, join us on Agriculture of America. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. You know, most of this show, we have been talking about things transpiring in Washington, D.C. And of course, there's a lot that happens in D.C. But yesterday and today, there is not a lot going on. They had a bit of a snowstorm here recently, and Greg Solier joins us now. Greg, when are they going to get dug out there in the Mid-Atlantic? Well, uh, Mike, uh, they are doing just that uh, right now, coming off generally 5 to 10 inches across much of the capital uh, area. There were some reports uh, south, uh, just a little bit south of uh, Capital District itself and through Virginia that had close to 14 inches. So, yeah, they are still in clean out and dig out and uh, at least uh, ongoing recovery mode out there. Bethesda, for example, 9 inches as well. There's a late report that just came into the weather office. I've uh, been in contact with uh, colleagues over there at the USDA uh, weather operation, Brad Rippey and uh, Mark Rusberg. And, yeah, they're trying to cross the T's, dot the I's, keep that place going on a little to no power. Uh, so, yeah, the dig out, the clean out continues on. It's just as bad as was when you talk about snow in the deep south as it is in the metro area of D.C. here at the current time. Speaking of the south, Huntsville, Alabama picked up about a half a foot of snow and a dusting as far south from this storm system uh, is uh, about as far south as about Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, this morning it was frost and freeze all the way down to the Gulf Coast and the Florida panhandle. When Big time. <laughs> Wow, and it is something else, Greg. You know, as you look across the rest of the country, we're seeing this oscillation between deep cold and then well above average temperatures for the rest of this week. How do you see that playing out? Who's going to get cold and who's going to be a little toasty? Well, at least uh, we're going to get cold as it applies to the southern Canadian prairie, big sky in the Dakotas, and uh, we'll do it all over again this time. Probably a deeper profile of cold air extending all the way down into the south end of the winter wheat belt. You know, uh, Orion Samuelson always talks about every year we try to kill off the winter wheat crop with uh, near zero readings, and they'll likely do it again here probably by Thursday morning as far south as the Oklahoma panhandle. And we're talking actual air temperatures on this latest batch of uh, pure Arctic air the mother load, if you will, to see readings, actual air temperatures, mind you, 30, 35, close to 40 degrees below zero. As far south as northeastern Montana, North Dakota, just a couple of weeks ago, right before Christmas, we had some 40 to 45 degree below zero readings outside of Winnipeg. So this is Arctic air. And you make a great point. It's this oscillation back and forth. It keeps bitted barn operators, livestock managers on your toes. One day, yeah, we're above average. You soften up the grounds. The next day, you bring some snow and Arctic air and 50 to 70 mile an hour winds across the area. And we'll likely see that with the next couple of weather systems to blow on by one doing so right now. The Arctic air fills in for uh, tomorrow morning and Thursday morning and then signs that we are going to get into a January thaw over parts of the northern and central plains the southern Canadian prairie the divide on eastward uh, here as we move on through just about the second to, to third week of the month of January so there's relief in sight but it's La Nina and so these La Nina patterns uh, generally mean active and progressive weather systems to come on by so you know, while we'll get this you know break in the cold bike it will be short-lived. I think it's going to be one of these uh, early and often and active and busy weather patterns that continue on this wintertime season for producers. It'll keep you on your toes here right into springtime, no doubt about, uh, no doubt about that. Yeah, and definitely keep you on your toes. You get that freeze-thaw cycle, and that's a surefire way to roll an ankle while you're out there in a pasture or checking cattle at a feedlot. So stay safe out there, folks. Greg, I wanted to ask you, you touched on that Arctic air, that negative 30-degree actual air temperature coming into the northern plains here over the next uh, couple of days. Is there expected to be any wind with that? How far down could wind, uh, wind chills get? Well, it's already blowing like gangbusters, and we'll likely see that uh, play out here even with this uh, uh, transition back into Arctic air. Then once the center of the high settles on in, that's when we'll get our coldest readings, but not only in the front side of these Arctic air masses as they come on in. The back side, as we moderate temperatures, while hate to use the word warmer, while temperatures will rise, no, won't really necessarily be a warmer feel around here. But in any event, those winds, yeah, in open mountain pass areas, easily 67 miles per hour general you know at least a rangeland areas probably some gust 40 to 45 miles per hour that will not likely knock these wind chills down to barbaric levels no fooling around this kind of stuff uh with uh, levels of uh, 40 45 50 55 60 below zero on some of these wind chill factors so these values so use care and caution some spots will get ground blizzard not a lot of snow coming on down but what's 
snow on the ground is there will get lofted around. So watch out, watch for whiteout conditions the next 24 hours or so where there's significant snow cover, primarily the eastern Dakota, south of Iowa, east from there. Not much snow covered for now as you go back to the west until you hit the high plains areas of Montana and points on westward. And it may be very well where we look at this variable snow cover, mind you, by the way, going through the rest of wintertime. A lot of it east towards the Red River, minimal as you get towards the divide, and then you'll pick it on up again uh, from the divide back west all the way to the Pacific Coast. Yeah, it is definitely a good time, Greg, to fill those vehicles, uh, fuel tanks up, go ahead and put that additive in, throw a blanket in there and some uh, some hot pads because, you know, we saw those folks stranded for 14 hours on I-95 in D.C. This cold weather is brutal. You touched on the snow looking out to weekend. Greg, are you still seeing a snowmaker that might make its way across? Uh, yeah, it'll make its way uh, from uh, the northern plains into the upper Midwest. Again, not a lot of snow expected there, but there is a secondary system we're going to watch coming out of the plains. Uh, it'll drop into the Ozarks, run up the Ohio Valley. Don't think it'll be the snowmaker that we've seen in the D.C. area, but probably the eastern Corn Belt gets an inch or two. And what's been a drought year snow-wise in that particular part of the Midwest? Meanwhile, not much added snow cover anticipated. We'll hold it for now, but likely begin to see some melting and thawing and uh, diminishing of what we've seen across parts of the western and northern Corn Belt, uh, parts of the northern and eastern plains. Uh, so, yeah, again, variable back and forth, basically the way we'll go. And a lot need to set up what's rest of the rest of the wintertime season around here. Fair amount of moisture. It's been an anomaly in the central and southern California, but northern California drought, added drought relief, Pacific Northwest, along the divide, a break. We're going to get a lot of these downslope winds into Montana, the western Dakotas, that eats away the snow cover, but these systems will energize in the Missouri Valley, the Red River Valley, and points out of the east. So keep an eye on a busy winter weather season, especially over the eastern half of the country. Winter weather is underway. Greg Solier, Chief Meteorologist on This Week in Agribusiness. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll talk with Todd Neely of DTN and Mac Marshall of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. So we'll see you tomorrow on AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, Farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.